I want to, to talk to you um, about a gift that has been given to us by our God, our Lord Jesus, that is not always evident in our lives, and uh, myself being no exception. The gift that I'm talking about is the gift of joy. This is not ordinary joy as the world understands joy, but a joy associated with great blessings from our Lord himself. It can often be confused with and mistaken for a worldly view of a feeling of great pleasure and happiness, sometimes with seductive and disastrous effect. This joy I speak of is spoken in the scripture as the joy of the Lord is my strength. This joy, the joy of the Lord is my strength, is a frequently spoken and familiar verse. We use it to encourage ourselves and others. But what does it really mean? Where do we get it from? What is the joy of the Lord? What does the joy of the Lord do to provide strength? What is the strength that we are talking about? The joy of the Lord is foundational to our relationship with God. And the most frequently quoted verse that uh, about the joy of the Lord is my strength is found in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 8. This uh, reference is a period that is after the children of Israel returned to Jerusalem from exile. They were listening to the law being read and were overcome with condemnation and weeping. In particular, Nehemiah 8 verses 9 to 10 read, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the word of the law. And in verse 10, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. When Ezra was reading the law to the people, it produced great sorrow because their lives and behavior were not in alignment with the law. But instead of being rebuked and condemned, they were instructed to celebrate because of the joy of the Lord. Why would the Lord have joy? After all, they were all sinners, just as we are today. The children of Israel were never known for their perfect behavior. They were known for being a people of God. They were his. He loved them as he does us. His people had been separated from him in exile for years and were finally reunited to him. God had his beloved people back. Why would he not have joy? 
The original word, Hebrew word for joy in Nehemiah 8.10 is chedva, meaning joy or gladness. The root word for joy in this context means to rejoice or to make glad. Strength in the same verse in the Hebrew means, and I apologize for my expression, meoes, meaning a place or means of safety, protection, refuge, or stronghold. The root word for strength means to be strong, prevail, to make firm, or strengthen. The joy of the Lord is a constant gladness and a steady cause for rejoicing. It stems from an inner strengthening of our relationship with the Lord. When Jesus died for us, he restored us to a peace with God that cannot be undone. Your joy rests on God's joy. In Luke 15, Jesus gives us three familiar accounts of things that were lost and then found a sheep, a coin, and a son. All three end with rejoicing when what was lost was found. God's joy is in the reconnection or union with what was lost. In Luke 15, four to six, we read, what man of you having a hundred sheep if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. I have found my sheep, which was lost. The parable of the lost sheep is very appropriate to the great work of God's, of man's redemption. The lost sheep represent the sinner as departed from God and exposed to certain ruin if not brought back to him, even though the lost sheep may not want to return. Christ is earnest in bringing sinners home. It should not be strange that a sheep would be lost or that a shepherd would seek a lost sheep, even if it meant endangering the flock. The point of this parable is in Christ's rejoicing at the discovery and reinstatement of the lost sheep. A lost sheep can never save himself or find the shepherd himself. If the shepherd did not take action, the sheep was doomed. Many rabbis of that time believed that God the Father received sinners who came to him out of their own strength and determination, seeking forgiveness. However, in the parable of the shepherd and the sheep, Jesus taught that God actively seeks out the lost. He does not grudgingly receive the lost. Instead, he searches after them. God finds the sinner more than the sinner finds God. In Luke 15, 8 to 9, we read, 
Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loves, loses, I beg your pardon, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Oh, what woman having 10 coins if she loses one? If the shepherd was interested in one in a hundred, it makes sense that the woman will be interested in one in 10. She did not just count the coins as lost to care nothing about it. It has been suggested this coin was possibly one of several others on a silver chain worn around the head of as a mark of a married woman. In such a case, it was a precious ornament to a woman and made the loss all the more severe. Spurgeon commented that in a sense, the loss belonged to God, whether they knew it or not. The piece of silver was lost, but still claimed. Observe that the woman called the money my piece, which was lost. When she lost its possession, she did not lose her right to it. It did not become somebody else's when it slipped out of her hand and fell upon the floor. This part of the parable speaks to perseverance as she kept looking until she found the coin. This is how the church led by Christ, will search for lost souls. First, they will put forth the light of God's word, then sweep and clean their own place, and then search carefully for the lost. I quote, rejoice with me. When the coin was finally found, the woman was naturally joyous. In the same way, God is joyous when the sinner repents in contrast to the religious leaders who complained when the tax collectors and the sinners drew near in redemptive amazement to Jesus to hear him. According to Barclay, many of the religious people of Jesus' day believed differently, even had a saying, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. Christ's disciples must be careful that they do not give the same impression, especially in their often appropriate zeal to speak out against popular sins. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus added this so that both the religious leaders and the sinners who heard him knew that repentance is critical for the, for the sinners lost when they are found. And we read in Luke 15, 31 to 32. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. It was right that we should make merry and be glad answered the complaint 
of the religious leaders that began chapter 15. They had no reason to complain and every reason to be joyous. In each of these parables, the message to the tax collectors and sinners was clear. Repent and come home to the Father. The message to the religious leaders was also clear. Be joyous when the lost are found, when they repent and are found by the Father. Spurgeon again summarized these three parables by suggesting that searching and seeking of the shepherd's son, the Holy Spirit, and God our Father is conducted with and through the church. Further, that Christ stretches forth his merciful hand to those worthy of divine compassion as being the unrighteous, the guilty, the undeserving. These being the proper subjects for the infinite mercy of God. In a word, the salvation is not of merit, but of grace. In all of these accounts, the Lord says in Luke 15, 7, I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Rejoicing, rejoice with me. More joy in heaven. The emphasis in this verse is not on the proportion of joy, but on the joy of finding the lost. This was the error of the Pharisees and the scribes who complained. They were not joyful when tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus. Over one sinner who repents, then over 90 just persons who need no repentance points to the sheep that can do nothing to rescue himself or repent. Jesus mentioned the need for repentance in the last few words of this brief story and affirms that the lost person or sheep will need to repent when God finds them. Joy is not exclusive to men. It is an ecstatic condition shared with Christ and all his holy ones. The Apostle John identified the free gift of peace given to each of us and describes peace's characteristic as resulting in rest for our hearts accompanied with a lack of fear of the world. In John 14, 27, we read, Peace I leave with you, a peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Do not be afraid or troubled. Paul connects these thoughts of John by emphasizing that faith in God, rather than rule following, will accomplish the fruit of this gift. And this is given freely through the Holy Spirit who dwells in each believer. And in Romans 15, 13, we read, Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul re-emphasizes the admonition to rejoice, described in the manner of our conduct before God 
and establishing the consequences of our obedience to practice joy and rejoicing. A familiar scripture to you, Philippians 4, 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We can note again the abnomition. Be gentle. Anxious for nothing. Pray unceasingly and be joyful. Spiritual strength and joy results from Christ's approval of our good conscientious conduct before men and Christ. And in Romans 14, 17 to 18, we can read, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. A priority is not to seek the approval of men. However, our Christian walk and works will be acknowledged by men when our priority and our obedience is to Christ Jesus. The children of Israel mourned due to their failure to uphold the law and were lost in their own strength. However, we can derive strength from the faith in our Lord's forgiving love for us, despite the failure of our own personal works. In 1 John 4.16, we read, Our hopelessness is... Dis Sorry, let me read that. We have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and a God abides in him. Our hopelessness is dispelled when we acknowledge and understand that our Lord's love for his people, including you and me, covers a multitude of sins by the acceptance of Christ's sacrifice at the cross. By drawing on this image, Peter reminds us in Acts 2.28, of how we are forgiven. Then Peter said to them, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ's death atones or covers our sins. Not one of us would be able to stand in God's presence without condemnation if it were not for the covering sacrificial death of Jesus. This truth will enforce our faith and will sustain us when we need our Lord's strength produced, producing a fruit in us of great joy. In Isaiah 62, five, 
we read, for as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. We don't often think of God rejoicing, but this passage tells us that he does. And in what circumstances? As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall our God, your God, rejoice over you. In Zephaniah 3.17, we can also read the Lord your God in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The Lord reminds us that despite all, he is always in our midst, mighty to save. Christ will exceedingly rejoice over us to do us good. We are to continue in his love without any variation or change. Nothing can separate us from his love. It will always remain the same. He will take contentment and satisfaction with us in his love. It will be exceedingly pleasing and joyful for him to love fully his people. Our Lord rejoices. Our Lord rejoices with joy and singing, displaying his delight for all his people. We will become his fully redeemed and called ones. We have his righteousness and grace upon us, and we'll be said to be his Hesibah, the delight in her, his bride, in whom he delights. And in Isaiah 12, verse 3, <clears throat> Isaiah asserts <clears throat> this joy is ours to take as our Lord is our salvation, in whom we trust. We are instructed not to fear, as the Lord is our strength and our salvation, as we endlessly draw on his will. And 12.3 states, therefore with joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. <clears throat> the strength that God provides is given directly through the gift of his grace. <clears throat> In 1 Peter 5.10 we read, and God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. His strength will enable us to overcome impossible and otherwise unresolvable problems. The firmness of his strength will be solid and unyielding and his steadfast strength will be unwavering. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2 and 7, we read in verse 2, Grace is a spiritual gift given freely to each according to his good will. And in 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according 
to the measure of Christ's gift. We also can read in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, what can we say? How many thorns in our flesh does it take for us to realize that his grace is sufficient for us? How weak do we have to become before his strength is made perfect in each of us? What does this mean? The joy of the Lord is our strength, is brought to fullness when we accept his power, provision, his and free gift of righteousness by his grace that restores us into his eternal presence that we may rejoice. In Romans 5.17, we read, For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one much more though those who receive abundance of grace and a gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. The gratification of our flesh is often equated to pleasure in our lives and can be confused with joy. Joy is the inner and frequent and out, outward manifestation of our contentment in Christ through our faith in him. Contentment, and in particular spiritual contentment, does not come from the world. Spiritual contentment and resulting ecstatic joy will only come from our spiritual union and obedience with Christ. True joy peace and righteousness will only arise through an intimate and ongoing relationship with our Lord in faith. The grace of God and the gift of righteousness are said to abound unto many. The abundance of grace is not meant to suggest an infusion of righteousness or holiness into us by some independent act of our own, but to enable us to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is a free gift and is to be enjoyed by all who receive this grace freely from Christ. This gift is only received by faith in Christ. Therefore, there is no room for boasting, but great reason for thanksgiving and joy. Since God our Father raised Christ from the dead, and showed him the way from death to life through his resurrection, we too are given the same path of life through Christ. Our spiritual death and resurrection in Christ gives us much to be joyous about as we anticipate eternal life with the first fruit of them that slept and begotten from the dead. In Acts 2.28, we read, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. 
true and lasting joy is being in the presence of our Lord Jesus. Our joy in his glorious presence is ours now, as it will be as we contemplate Christ as man and God, being exalted to the right hand of God the Father, crowned with honor and glory, and all the joy set before him in his suffering and death. I want to leave you with three other scriptures that I found encouraging, and I will hopefully encourage you, giving each of us cause to be joyous in Christ's strength. In Psalm 27:14, we're admonished to wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And in Romans 12, 12, we're told to rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continue steadfast in prayer. Finally, in Psalm 28, 7 to 8. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. In closing, I ask you to consider the Lord's admonition to us. Be of good courage. Wait upon the Lord. Rejoice and be steadfast. And finally, remain in his saving refuge. Thank you.